Hi, welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast. On my last podcast, I spoke to Beth Allison Barr about her book, The Making of the Biblical Womanhood. And the premise behind the book is really simple. Biblical womanhood isn't biblical. In fact, Beth argues it's merely a disguise for promoting patriarchy and subjugating women, and she's right. But when we hear those words, most of us sitting in the pews, well, we can't relate. Our experience doesn't relate to the intensity of those words, patriarchy, subjugation. So I wanted to share how this idea of biblical womanhood tends to show up in our communities. Because I think more often than not, it's expressed in really simple, subtle ways. And as I share what it can look like, I think that you're going to find that you have indeed bumped into it and been pressured to be it, this ideal biblical woman. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. All right, welcome back. Are you ready? Because I'm going to dive in. I'm going to start with scripture. Romans 12, verse 2. Paul says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that by testing we may discern what is good and acceptable and perfect. And I take that to mean that we're to be observant to the messages we're receiving and discern to identify, expose, examine them so that we can replace the wrong narratives with God's true story. And there is one particular negative narrative we hear often in our faith communities, and it's not always said outright, as I have mentioned, but we hear it in the whispers from pastors and authors and even our small group leaders. It's this idea that we must be this ideal biblical woman. I personally bought into this negative narrative when I became a Christian. Now, most of you know by now, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and I never read the Bible, and I didn't go to church, and I didn't even know any Christians. When I became a Christian follower, I was clueless. I didn't know what it meant to be a Christian woman. What was that supposed to look like, let alone how to be one? And when you don't know what something's supposed to look like, you don't know how it's supposed to be. It kind of creates what? You know this, uneasiness, insecurity. And so when I arrived in Dallas as this brand new Christian, I did what, well, what many of you do. I looked to the left and I looked to the right to figure out how to be like her. It was through observation that I quickly learned that Christian women are supposed to be what I like to call light pink. That's the color I saw whenever I went to women's Bible study at Northwest Bible Church. It's what I saw when I went to seminary. And to get the picture, 
think of one of the wealthiest areas near your home. And if you're my age, think of the famous series called Dallas. Remember how the women were dressed to the nines with the shoes and the bags and the jewelry to match? Their makeup was tastefully done and their fingernails were well manicured. Yes, that was my first exposure to Christian women. And these women, they seemed quieter and nicer. And I, on the other hand, had just arrived from New York. Sarcasm, directness, swearing, they're normal for us Northeasterners. My hair was long and curly, and the rest had this silky hair. Mine was curly and unruly. I didn't wear makeup. I'd never had a manicure. I didn't own a fancy purse. I owned a backpack, way more functional. And there were times when I found myself thinking, if I'm going to be a good Christian woman, then I need to be more like her. Ever felt like that? I need to get some makeup and a red person. I need to be quieter and nicer. I thought I needed to be light pink. You know, later when I served in the church, it became evident that we actually promote this light pink lady as the ideal biblical woman. Who is she? If I had to give her a definition, no problem. You know it. If I asked you, you could give it to me. She's married with kids. She stays home and creates a warm, hospitable space for her husband, children, and others. She serves in her church, in the nursery, children's church, women's ministry, or on the hospitality team. And she looks damn good doing it. She doesn't sweat, ladies. She glistens. In our next podcast series, I'm going to be talking about body image. Whew. We need to talk about our bodies. It's a really painful subject for us women, isn't it? And unfortunately, our faith communities haven't done a very great service in helping us figure out how to live well in our bodies. You know, we've been told that our bodies are supposed to be skinny and sexy and perfect, you know, this this woman. But most of us, we can't fit that ideal body. Yeah, we the ideal biblical woman also has an ideal body. And we're going to dive into that topic after this podcast, we're going to do a series. I think it's going to be four or five week series on body image. But for now, let's go back to like just the persona. Forget about the body. We're going to talk about that in a, in a few weeks. Right now, I want to talk about the persona of who she's going to supposed to be. When I started in this Christian community, I heard pastors and prominent theologians describe the ideal biblical woman as having God-given attributes, and then they listed them. Things like compassionate, warm, polite, sensitive, obedient, sweet, charming, quiet, submissive. Now, these are lovely attributes, I just didn't have many of them. And that made me wonder, like, is something wrong with me? These thoughts, these thoughts, these things that have been communicated to us about what it means to be this ideal woman, they can drive us to try to conform to something we were never meant to be. Ever been there? See, you may not relate to the word subjugation or patriarchy, but I bet you're starting to go, hmm, yeah. That I get, Jackie. Yeah, that's the ideal biblical woman being communicated in very subtle ways to you and me. Now, I want to say, as I described this woman, 
I want to make it very clear. I am not against light pink women. <laughs> Over time, I came to see these women uh, with all the nails and the purses. You know, they were kind and caring women. They had dignity. They served each other and the church very well. What was most evident about these women? They really loved Jesus. And my mom, the most influential woman in my life, is light pink. She raised five kids, kept a clean home, had dinner on the table, five o'clock sharp. My mom is a woman of beauty. She's both physically beautiful and she creates beauty wherever she is. She can rival Martha Stewart or Pinterest at this point. And when you're with her, you see beauty. You experience it and you also experience peace. See, my mom is light pink, which by the way is one way women can express who God is. The only problem is it's not the only way. And many times we're taught as if it is. See, the problem, Beth is right, the problem with these biblical ideas is first and foremost, they're not biblical. Nowhere in scripture does God state a woman is dot, dot, dot. Go ahead, check it out. See if I'm right. Anywhere, give me a scripture that says a woman is supposed to be dot, 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 and then give a list of specific attributes that describe this woman. Don't get me wrong, like we've been quoted 1 Peter. 1 Peter does say that women are to have a gentle spirit, but Paul said gentleness is a fruit of the spirit, which is a trait to be found by all believers. And in Ephesians, it states that men are to love their wives and women are to respect their husbands. But I like, I'd like to propose that respect is a way we love someone. And love, although directed towards men in Ephesians, is actually a mark of all believers. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. That's right. Just because an attribute is highlighted in a particular passage doesn't mean it's gender-specific forever and ever. It doesn't mean it's a gender-specific attribute. I remember a prominent woman in the Southern Baptist community asking me how I taught women in our church to be biblical women. That's what she asked me. How do you help women learn what it means to be a biblical woman? And I, I knew what she wanted. I think she was hoping that I would say I, I had some sort of curriculum that taught through Titus 2 or, or something like that, but I didn't. And I remember saying to her, well, I never teach women how to be women. I don't think the Bible tells us to teach women how to be women. The Bible says we're to teach people to be like Jesus. And so I just try to teach that. I mean, I figure if we can get that down, then everything else will probably fall into place. See, again, I agree with Beth. The problem with the ideal biblical woman is she's not biblical. Scripture does not give us a list of female attributes. Now, when I say they aren't biblical, I'm not saying they're wrong. It's not wrong for a woman to be sweet or nurturing. But it is not wrong to say, but it is wrong to say that these attributes are strictly female and then punctuate it with, quote unquote, thus says the Lord. Or, as some tend to say, it's just God's design. 
more importantly, I think that when we teach um, this concept of ideal biblical womanhood, I think it actually fosters insecurity and competition and division amongst God's women. And I could talk about, I'm going to talk about that in the fall, how that creates division amongst us. It's going to be a while down the road, but hang on. If you, by the way, want to dig into deeper of this whole concept of, of how we compete because of the ideal biblical woman, I would highly recommend you purchase my book called I'm Enough, Learning to Live in Our Own Skin. Or you can check out my master class. It's the I'm Enough master club class on my website, The Marcella Project. I think it's time we start living differently than the negative narratives we've been carrying around. And if what you're hearing is like going, aha, I get this, well, would you be willing to pass this podcast on to a friend that also needs to hear it? And I would love for you to subscribe to Jackie Always Unplugged on any of the platforms that you listen to your podcast on. Please do that. I would so appreciate that. So let me just say, we have this ideal for women, and guess what? We also have one for men, the ideal biblical man. And you may be surprised to discover that what men hear from the church and from our culture are unsurprisingly similar. Men are supposed to be, among other things, and here's the list, strong, independent, self-reliant, able to provide, unemotional, and decisive. When we raise our boys, we train them not to be emotional. We tell them, don't cry like a girl. Anger and jealousy are the only two acceptable emotions for men. Think about that. Anger and jealousy are the only two acceptable emotions for men. But we don't speak about them differently than when we speak about women being emotional. Have you noticed, like, the, when's the last time you've heard somebody say to an angry man, stop being so emotional? Now, nah, we actually don't associate anger and jealousy, at least when men are expressing it, as being emotional. When, in fact, they are being emotional. Not only do we raise boys to be unemotional, we also teach them to view women as sexual objects. A boy, yeah, I learned this from, I'm trying to think of his name. He wrote the book, The Way Men Long to Be. Stephen, can't remember. I'll put it on the Facebook group page, Jackie Always Unplugged. He says a boy can be a friend with a little girl up until they reach pre-puberty. And at that point, they become socialized, or we could say policed, by older boys or by their fathers or by friends to view girls as sex objects for their desire. Touch becomes identified solely as something that is sexual. So if a boy touches another boy, they're teased for being gay, right? And in their adolescence, they, aren't, they are expected to, quote-unquote, get some. They are pushed, teased, and even bullied if they aren't getting any. Now, when I think about how we raise our boys, I got to be honest, I have two sons. And so realizing how they have been socialized by our culture and the church, it's painful. It hurts. I, I truly believe that in many ways we have dehumanized our brothers. 
And we have pastors and theologians that teach that men are by design more suited for leadership. They're more quote unquote analytical and logical and therefore more suited to protect doctrine and preach from the pulpit. Consider the words used to describe men. Like, how do they fit into the fruit of the Spirit? Think about if you had to describe men, if we had to give, like, descriptive words, self-reliant, you know, analytical, decisive, unemotional, strong, independent, able to provide. Those are the list, right? How do they uh, intersect with the fruit of the Spirit? Words like love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, if I were to place the fruit of the Spirit within a list of other attributes and then asked you to label which one of these are feminine and masculine, most would categorize the fruit of the Spirit as feminine. Now, do you see the quandary this produces for our brothers? So to walk in the Spirit means they must risk being viewed as feminine or, or, or effeminate? And, and, and what did we teach our boys? There is nothing worse for a man than to be like a girl. Yeah, you see the problem here. Michael Kimmel is a leading masculinity sociologist in the U.S., and he says men define themselves not by who they are, but by who they aren't. Let me say that again. Men define themselves not by who they are, but by who they aren't. So think about how hard men work to avoid being called a girly man or a mama's boy or a pansy or a sissy or a wimp. Think about that. Did you know that at any moment a man's behavior can put him under fire and his manliness can come up for debate? At any moment. No wonder our men are confused and angry. Nat Pyle is an author of this book called Man Enough. All of these books I highly recommend. Argues that one of the reasons there are more women than men in the pews is because, and I love this, the message of the gospel conflicts with the cultural message guys hear every day. Rather than being independent and self-reliant, able to provide and strong, the gospel tells us that we must be dependent on Christ and on other believers The gospel tells us that God is our true provider and that when we are weak, he is strong. Yeah. Imagine how this produces a bit of a quandary for our Christian men. So now think about how we socialize women and what we tell women about the ideal biblical woman and what we tell men about the ideal biblical man. And keep in mind what might happen then when a woman shows up in the church or the boardroom or the local government possessing attributes or roles traditionally ascribed to men. How does this set men and women up to fill their calling to rule and subdue and fill the earth together? Yeah, you can see the problem. Let me share with you a situation in which I found myself dealing with these questions. As many of you know, I served in a megachurch as the teaching pastor to women, and I was rocking it. In our ministry, we had over a 1,000 women, just a little 
over a thousand women attending our studies and we were training women to teach and we were writing Bible study curriculum and women from around the country were inquiring about our ministry strategies. And at one point we started having men in our church ask if they could attend our women's Bible study. And in humor, I told them that now they didn't have the right hormone. But the truth is, I knew that women tended to become silent about spiritual matters when men entered the conversation. And I also knew the importance of women hearing themselves speak about Jesus and the Bible and their lives. And so I told the men, nope, you can't come. And some of the men in our church started harassing our men's minister asking why his ministry wasn't as successful as our ministry, and I knew right away that was not going to be good for anyone. I hurt for our men's minister because men are taught not to lose and definitely not to lose to a girl. And my brother was being humiliated, and that should not have happened. Nor should we women have been expected to be less so that the men in our church could feel more. So I went to our men's leader, and we talked about the situation, and he was man enough to acknowledge it was humiliating, and I was angry for him. And I bent over backwards to make sure I communicated to him and others that ministry is not a competition but a collaboration, and that I was his ally. So where did I come up with that narrative that we are collaborators and allies so glad you asked, because it's in our birth story. It's one of the two foundational load-bearing walls on which God built his world. The first load-bearing wall is the human relationship with God. The second load-bearing wall is man and woman's relationship in ruling and filling the earth and subduing. Holding on to elusive ideals, well, quite frankly, it causes the bride of Christ to limp and it defaces the image of God. A woman once called me and explained that she was a stay-at-home mom with three little ones. She was overwhelmed. She wasn't loving mothering, and she was in this Christian woman's circle, and they informed her that she needed to embrace her role because mothering is her purpose. It's a woman's purpose. And immediately, my mind started to race through these imaginary Rolodex. Where does Scripture say that? Turns out, Scripture doesn't say a woman's purpose is to be a mother. You know what Scripture says our purpose is? It's to glorify God. Isaiah 43, 7 states, For all who claim me as their God will come, for I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them. Romans 11.36 proclaims, For everything comes from him and everything exists by Him, his power and is intended for his glory. Glory, or to glorify, it's not a very easy concept to grasp. Like you can't go into the grocery store and buy it in a box. So, to glorify, to minimize, simplify, whatever, it means to reflect who God is in such ways that the world will know who he is and bring honor to his name. In other words, if you happen to be a mother or a soccer player or a law clerk or a janitor, you must do it in such a way that it brings honor and glory to your God. That's what we were made to be and do. And we do that in a gazillion different ways. And in fact, I would argue we must. 
We must. Why? Because God is enormous, multifaceted, and beyond our comprehension. Just skim through Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, or Job 36, 26. Can you imagine trying to capture all of who God is through a few attributes or a single color like light pink? Of course not. I mean, think about it. If God were color, he'd be every color there is, every shade of those colors, and colors we haven't even seen yet. God's just humongous. In, in no way can one color capture the enormity of who our God is, his diversity in creating his image within his people. Eugene Peterson said, God's creative genius is endless. He never, fatigued and unable to maintain the rigors of creativity, resorts to mass-producing copies. Each life is a fresh canvas on which he uses lines and colors and shades and lights and textures and proportions that he has never used before. Scripture says it like this, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Masterpiece. Do you know what a masterpiece is? It's a a one-of-a-kind, never-to-be-seen-again-in-history image bearer. We are not carbon copies. We are individual image bearers who bear the mark of our maker in very unique ways. And this understanding, when you not only intellectually know it, but you start living it out of every fiber of your body, it's revelatory. It helped me see some of God's attributes that show up in my life, and it helped me stop trying to conform, and it helped me to embrace the color that God made me to be. We have been told, usually in very subtle ways, that we need to be this ideal biblical woman. And quite frankly, ladies, we have been chasing her. The time, the money, the energy spent is exhausting. And it has created in us insecurity and competition and division among God's people. And worse, it has held back the full display of who God is. Chasing her denies God's creativity. It ignores his word and it defaces his image. It's a big deal. Biblical womanhood isn't biblical. And so I think it's time we embrace our one-of-a-kind, never-to-be-seen-again, image-bearing self. It's time we reject that false narrative and embrace who God made us to be, our own special color. My prayer for you is that we would be women who, as the Danish philosopher and theologian Kierkegaard said, could pray. And now, Lord, with your help, I shall become myself. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.